So astronomers and UFOs, this is a great talk because, uh, you know, a lot of times, and I'll get more into this in just a second, uh, people will say, if there were something to UFOs, astronomers would know this, or they would uh, be involved also somehow, but uh, they are. And so that is a silly comment that people make when they say such things. Uh, so I love this talk. This is one of my favorite talks. But let us begin, my friends. Astronomers and UFOs, the driving force behind UFO research. So this is Seth Shostak. Many of you know him. Some of you um, might have cringed when you saw that because a lot of people in the UFO field aren't big fans of Seth Shostak's. I personally am a big fan of his. He, if you haven't seen him talk, he's a great speaker. Uh, in fact, this picture right here is from a talk that a TED talk that he does about aliens, and it's really, really good. And that's what's funny. You know, sure, he's a skeptic when it comes to UFOs, but, you know, he is a, a big proponent that there are alien civilizations out there. And, of course, SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, the SETI Institute is actually what he works for, but SETI itself is actually a field of study, um, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So, um He's not the only one that does that, or nor is the, the institute he represents the only one that does that. Scientists across the world do this, and we'll talk more about this. But let's see where this goes. Um, just because I had to rearrange this a little bit, because this is going to be on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Or I had to take off some of the clips, the video clips that I normally show. So uh, even though I'm going to get to the content and the gist of the whole thing, and you're going to get all of the down and dirty if you were to see me do this lecture live, normally I do show some other video clips from television shows. So for instance, with Seth Shostak, I show a clip where he is actually on the Ancient Aliens program, which is kind of funny because if they're so scientific and, and everything, you know, it's kind of weird that they would go on a show like, uh, like that. Um, in fact, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, Ancient Aliens is pretty weird. It's not, I really love Giorgio, uh, the guy who stars in it with the funky hair, but it's not um, my favorite show when it comes to research. I'm just kind of, especially these days, not so into speculation. And of course, it is highly speculative. And in some cases, if not many cases, so much so that it tends to almost get on the side of about of ridiculousness, um, in my opinion especially speculating ideas that like, you know, um, the Greek gods were aliens and this sort of thing. But uh, anyway, uh, so on that end, you know, I'm more like Seth. But on the other end, you know, one problem with Seth Shostak is he's a little bit overly skeptic. So for instance, it's not the first time he said this, but there was a time I met him. I've met him actually a couple, maybe a few times. Um, not just, you know, uh, because I'm, I'm at an event to see him talk. I've only really gone to see his talks maybe a couple of times. Both times I really enjoyed. He's very intelligent, very witty, 
makes an incredible argument that, uh, you know, really it, it, it would be odd. It would be unusual and um, unlikely that there are not other intelligent civilizations out there. And, and so his talk's really great. In fact, the, I usually play a clip here from a TED Talk where he makes that argument, and it's really good. He even argues that if we haven't found life in the form of at least a microbe, and I think he says by 2025, something like that, he'll buy everybody in the room a Starbucks coffee. Uh, he's completely convinced that that will happen, which is pretty exciting. And we'll get kind of into this as we go on. But the problem is when I met him, and he says this a lot, but I, he was like, well, if there really was something to UFOs, then astronomers would be seeing them and they would be looking into this, but they're not. Astronomers don't care. That is completely 100% false. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you in this talk. In fact, his comment, of course, I didn't really have time to, uh, I think I said, something along the lines of, well, actually, that's not the case. There are astronomers that have been into this because I was aware of that already at the time. And he said, well, I'd love to see that information. I don't know that he would love to see the information. In fact, I know for a fact that Stanton Friedman, a famous uh, UFO researcher, I'm going to put my face in this too so you can see me. But Stanton Friedman, a famous UFO researcher uh, and a physicist, had actually given him a book that we'll go over that talked about astronomers and UFOs. But in later debates, you know, Stanton would ask, have you read that book? Have you read that book? And he would always say no. The, and that's what's a bit frustrating is often he has given reference material um, for this topic and he doesn't review any of it. I do not know. I cannot think of one time where he said, yes, actually I looked at that piece of information and I thought it was interesting. No. He always says, no, I haven't looked at that. Perhaps he's assuming that, you know, they're just UFO cranks that write these articles or stories. But uh, as you'll see as we go along, that's not the case whatsoever. It's, it is a bit frustrating and concerning because it's a bit unscientific not to look at the data and it leads one to believe that he doesn't want to know. Um, and that might be uh, more about his own um, personal uh, internal workings rather than actual science and data. So I hope to get some chances to debate him or at least attempt to enlighten him further in the future. Uh, I've done this talk actually at at least one event where he's been, um, and hopefully he'll see this talk one day, or at least I've also got an article on this topic on Open Minds uh, TV. But the way that Shostak looks for aliens is essentially using radio telescopes. Uh, you know, I should put a picture in here, but you know, it's normally in the video, but that I show, but I can't show it now because uh, copyright issues and stuff being on YouTube. But you know, they have these big satellite arrays. You, if you've seen the movie Contact, you'll kind of understand this. Or if you've driven through New Mexico, like near Socorro, where they have the uh, giant array there, uh, that is one of the places that they they use. But essentially, they're listening for radio signals. In fact, I wrote an article I'm really proud of recently about Tesla and Marcotti, Marchotti, Marcotti, Marcotti, I think his name is, the guys who invented radio. Uh, and when they first started listening to radio waves, 
they were hearing weird signals and they thought they were coming from aliens. Uh, some of their contemporaries at the time, such as Edison and, um, and even Einstein commented on their beliefs that they were getting radio signals from aliens. And I, I recently wrote an article on this for Den of Geek and you can find uh, a link to it on Open Minds and uh, on my blog and I'll put a link in here. But um, what uh, Edison actually believed them that they were probably right. These probably were signals from aliens. Uh, but Einstein was a little different. He said that, no, I don't think they would use radio waves like we do. Uh, they would probably be using lasers, which is an interesting comment because in the beginning when people were talking about this technology of listening to radio waves from aliens, that was a big debate. And this is like back in the 60s. People are saying, you know, uh, radio waves are something we use now, but, you know, in the future they'll be antiquated and no doubt an advanced civilization would be using you know, more modern technology, perhaps even lasers and light beams like Einstein had suggested. Uh, but uh, Frank Drake, uh, a scientist who's known for the Drake equation, which kind of tries to estimate how many civilizations might be out there and others really decided to go the radio route. And that's what they've been doing for decades is listening to radio signals, just like in the movie Contact, to hear aliens uh, hopefully sending a signal to say hi. That has yet to happen. There is something called the wow signal, which was received, which was kind of a weird signal that they weren't able to determine what it was, but it was just one signal. And, you know, in order to uh, demonstrate, uh, in order for their protocols to be met that it fits an extraterrestrial civilization, they need to repeat. And the wow signal has not repeated. Uh, we do have now these fast bursts, these fast radio signals coming uh, that we don't know what they are. But radio astronomy is important because what Tesla was probably hearing, or Marconi, they were, that's his name, Marconi, they were probably hearing uh, celestial objects. At the time, they didn't know that things like pulsars and, and other objects out there actually emit radar or radio signals. So a lot of the times when we're listening for radio, we're actually hearing signals from stars and from celestial objects. Uh, that, so it wasn't aliens, it was something else. So what SETI's trying to do is trying to determine if it is a celestial object or intelligent, and they haven't gotten anything that they believe is intelligent yet. So that's how they're looking for aliens. They are kind of branching out and looking at other areas, such as perhaps even looking for light pulses um, coming from a civilization, kind of a civilization maybe shooting some lasers at us, uh, the, the light which has information in it that we can perhaps retrieve and interpret. Um, to figure out what the aliens are telling us. So that is how Seshostak looks for aliens. This other guy we have here that we just talked about is a little different. Uh, normally, I actually play a clip just to demonstrate that, you know, Seth isn't all, Seth isn't above interacting with other uh, types of uh, television shows, or at least media that is not as uh, scientifically rigorous, I'll put it, uh, perhaps more dubious. Uh, he was on an episode of Ancient Aliens. In fact, that conference that I was talking about that I spoke at and he did also 
was an ancient aliens conference. There were these conferences called AlienCon that went on for a couple years that were hosted, put together by the travel or by the History Channel, um, and it was centered around ancient aliens. And I was able to speak there. They had maybe like six or seven of them, six I think. Um, but at these alien cons, Shostak was there, and Shostak actually was on an episode of ancient aliens and usually i play that clip and in that clip he kind of shows his radio telescope and demonstrates how he looks for aliens of course uh giorgio was doing it much differently he's looking at ancient artifacts and uh mysterious like locations and and structures and buildings and in his view they're likely these mysteries are solved by aliens that it was aliens that built these or helped humans or something like that uh, Shostak's reaction to that is kind of like this. He's, he does not agree with Giorgio and his ideas. So what inspired me, however, to do this talk is, like I said, is Shostak saying astronomers are not interested in this topic, but they are very interested in this topic. And let me begin to prove that to you. Let us begin with the very origins of astronomy. So astronomy started in the Renaissance period. Um, this is, you know, kind of a period where people were starting to get more scientific and to look at science, um, which is a good thing. I'm a big fan of science myself, and I think many of you are as well. But modern astronomy began in the Renaissance, about the 14th and 17th centuries is when the Renaissance was, uh, to the, the 14th to the 17th centuries is when the Renaissance was. Um, but sightings go all the way back to the beginning, towards the end of the Renaissance. In 1686, there was a sighting by Gottfried Kirch. He was the director of the Berlin Observatory. And that's what you're seeing here. On the left, you see Gottfried, and on the right, you see the Berlin Observatory, which is kind of funny. It's, an, it's called an observatory, but as you can see here, uh, it's essentially this, this beautiful, expensive house with, on the top of it, a telescope. Some of your homes may look like this if you're interested in astronomy. You've got a telescope on the roof, on your roof patio. I know in California, the headquarters of Open Mind uh, TV currently, there are a lot of rooftop uh, patios and people, some people have telescopes on them. And in the olden days, that would qualify you to be an observatory. But Gottfried Kirch, one of the very first astronomers, this is one of the very first observatories at the, the uh, you know, beginnings of astronomy. He had a weird sighting uh, on July 9th of 1686. Some of you may be like, some of you UFO guys will be like, whoa, that's about the same date that uh, Roswell, everything happened. Actually, July 9th was the day that they denied it was anything weird, and they said it was a, uh, a balloon, but that was in 1947. This is way before 1686. But anyways, at 1.20 a.m., Kirch reported seeing a bright fireball 
with a tail that was a quarter size of the moon. He said it hovered for 15 minutes. He says that people in the town 11 miles away also reported seeing this. He said eventually the object darted off and left two glob globules that could only be seen by telescope. What? Pretty weird, right? I mean, um, that's an interesting sighting. Uh, what would, you know, uh, normally a comet or a fireball or a meteorite would not sit there and hover for 15 minutes, nor when it left would it leave globules. So this is a really weird sighting. Um, this is a really good one. And this is at the beginning of astronomy. Next slide, please. So let's move further into the future. And I'm going to large screen this because who doesn't like to look at the lovely Marilyn Monroe? Uh, very famous for being uh, a very beautiful young woman. But she was on the cover of this very famous Life magazine um, issue that actually was a pretty big deal for ufology. This article or this issue came out April 7th in 1952. And the article was, you can see in the uh, upper right-hand corner of this magazine, there is a case for interplanetary saucers. The beginning of the article on this says, the Air Force is now ready to concede that many saucer and fireball sightings still defy explanation. Here, life offers some scientific evidence that there is a real clay case for interplanetary saucers. Whoa, right? Uh, this article actually had a large effect on the public legitimizing the topic. Uh, several high-level witnesses, including two astronomers, were part of this article, and we'll go over that. And that's why it was so hard-hitting and such a big deal when this article came out. In fact, it prompted a report by a consultant for the Air Force investigation on UFOs into astronomers and their insights into this topic. So uh, a few things here. In fact, let me see if I cover this later on because here there's another important fact here. Um, we'll see. If I, if I repeat myself, it's no big deal because I think you all really got to know this. You got to learn this stuff. So when you meet Seth Shostak or other astronomers, uh, you know, if you meet uh, anybody famous regarding, you go to their talk and you ask them a question in public and they pull this, you know, well, if there is something to all of this, astronomers would be interested. You could say, well, sir, astronomers have been very interested in this topic. In fact, they are the ones who began civilian UFO research. Uh, this article here and the astronomers who were in it were so influential. This is 1952, and you might notice that they used the term saucers and interplanetary saucers. Before the term UFO came to be used, the term flying saucer was used. 
This article actually and other occurrences in 1952 influenced the Air Force to begin Project Blue Book. Now, at the time, they had already been doing UFO research. They began that in 1947 with a project called Project Sign that only lasted about a year. Then they started Project Grudge, which was a UFO research project. Uh, uh, project in the Air Force uh, until this period of time. In 1952, uh, the Air Force asked Colonel Edward Ruppelt to reevaluate the situation when it came to UFOs, and they asked him for his opinion. His opinion was that there really is enough there to warrant more investigation. So they said, fine, let's do this. You're in charge. And Ruppelt took over this program and started the uh, Project Blue Book. Now, at the time, like I said, you know, the term uh, flying saucers was being used. And Ruppelt felt there was a lot of baggage, that that's a silly term. There's a lot of baggage. In fact, I've got this great clip that I show, and I can't remember what talk. Maybe it's this one, um, but uh, normally... But it's Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and he says that he thinks the term is really unfortunate because it reminds people of, uh, you know, some people have this joke that a flying saucer is what you see uh, after you goose the waitress at a coffee shop, you know, and then she throws the, the coffee saucer. But uh, anyway, and goose, I think, is an old-timer term for inappropriately totally inappropriate for these days. And unfortunately, they, they might have done this back in the day. Who knows if uh, Dr. Hanek ever did this, but uh, maybe after a few drinks. But anyway, that's essentially touching their butt, uh, which you should not do. Do not touch uh, females without prior consent. Uh, and <laughs> that's a very bad thing. So uh, anyways, that was a joke that Heineck used to say. So there was a lot of baggage and a lot of people making fun of the term flying saucer. So Ruppelt decided to coin a new term, UFOs, unidentified flying objects. And Ruppelt's the guy, it, when he did this, it was when he was starting up Project Blue Book. So actually, UFOs is a military term. It was created by the Air Force to kind of get away from the baggage of flying saucers. What's funny about that is now... We're using this term UAPs, unidentified aerospace vehicles or unidentified aerial vehicles. There's a few different interpretations. But the reason we're using the term UAP is to get away from the baggage of UFOs because when people talk about UFOs, they kind of conjure this idea of alien spacecraft. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people uh, think of with UFOs, even though they're not. You know, it means unidentified. We don't know what it is. So... This article was highly influential in the public and in getting Project Blue Book going and, and a lot. And, and let's go over why here. Back to the PowerPoint. So here is one of the scientists that was in that article. His name is Dr. Lincoln La Paz. He was a leading scientist in the study of meteors. He actually ran this project called Project Twinkle. Uh, which, it, it, as you can see in this, and this is a description from the article, he invested green fireballs seen throughout the Southwest in the late 40s and early 50s. The U.S. Air Force established Project Twinkle to investigate these. 
It was never solved, and Dr. Laplaz did not believe them to be meteorites, which is kind of weird. You know, you would think any type of fireball, even if it's green, um, you know, the color demonstrates what the fireballs consist of. I don't know um, personally, and this would be worth looking into, I guess, if there have been uh, further sightings of green fireballs or further study of green fireballs, uh, I'm not quite sure. But uh, in the Life article, they talked about also UFO sightings. And they talked about how a leading, well-known, famous astronomer had, actually the way they put it is one of the top U.S. astronomers had their own UFO sightings. But the person was anonymous. Now, they did cover Dr. Lincoln LaPaz and his study of green fireballs, but then they also covered some astronomers who had their own UFO sightings, one of whom was one of the US, U.S.'s top astronomers, they claimed. Well, it turned out that that was Dr. Lincoln LaPaz. He just didn't want to out himself as having a UFO sighting um, in the article. So they didn't say that this astronomer was him, but it turned out later that it was. But here's how he describes his sighting. And this is interesting. This sighting was in July 10th of 1947. So we were just talking about Roswell and how Roswell, uh, you know, supposedly happened in, in early July. And, uh, you know, 1947. So actually, this is the day after the press release went out saying that, you know, Roswell was nothing but a weather balloon. So July 10th, 1947, at 4.47 p.m., Lincoln uh, La Paz here was traveling with his wife and two teenage daughters from Clovis, New Mexico, to Klein Corners, New Mexico. What? Roswell's in New Mexico. He said he saw a large, luminous, elliptical object with a wobbling motion. He and his families watched it for 30 seconds before it moved behind a cloud. It was kind of funny and cute in this article because he says immediately upon seeing this, he and his daughter, or especially his daughter, brought out a notebook and they started making notes and trying to make calculations as to what they saw. They estimated that the object they saw was 20 miles away, 165 to 245 feet long, 65 to 100 feet tall, and moved at 120 to 180 miles per hour. Dr. LaPaz said, this remarkably sudden ascent thoroughly convinced me that we were dealing with an absolute novel airborne device. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lincoln LaPaz. The other astronomer in the article was Claude Tombaugh, the man who discovered Pluto. And you see Pluto there. Some of you affectionately refer to Pluto as a planet, although it was, um, some people say downgraded, but uh, others argue that it's not a downgrading. There is no downgrading to be a dwarf planet. They're all just as important as each other. It is just a reclassification. But uh, the debate continues on Pluto. But this is a guy who discovered Pluto, Claude Tombaugh. 
he also described a sighting that he had in this life uh, article. He says in the summer of 1948, so the year after Lincoln La Paz's sighting and the year after uh, uh, Roswell, but also in New Mexico. He says he was in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It was 11 p.m. and he was with his wife and mother-in-law when they saw an object dart across the night sky. He says it was oval shaped with a blue-green glow. He uh, says, quote, it seemed to trail off at the rear into a shapeless luminescence. Um, he says he saw what appeared to be a half dozen windows on the front side of the craft. Uh, this, like I said, this 1952 article, because of the testimony of these astronomers, uh, caused the creation of Project Blue Book, helped inspire the creation of Project Blue Book. And how do we know this? Like I said, Colonel Ruppelt uh, is the guy who, who told us this. Actually, I don't know if I did say this. I say this all the time. When people ask me, what's the most important book to look at in this field? I always say Captain Ruppelt's book, An Estimate of the Situation. He essentially documented this whole uh, thing about how he investigated the UFO situation in 1952, how he was put in charge of Project Blue Book, um, how he tried to run a real investigation project, um, the extraordinary cases that he came across, and some history about what happened and some of the problems with the, the history of UFO research by the Air Force. So uh, definitely get out there and get Ruppelt's book. You can find it on paperback on Amazon. In fact, most of my YouTube videos, I have a link to it. But you can also get it for free on the NICAP site. That's N-I-C-A-P. Um, so if you uh, like to read online, you can find it there. So it's called An Estimate of the Situation uh, by Edward J. Ruppelt. Take a look at that. And that's how we know how influential this uh, life article was. So like I said, the... Uh, I'm gonna full screen so you can see this because this guy is really important. When I first did this talk, you know, I, Dr. J. Allen Hynek wasn't very well known. And one of my biggest fears has always been that his uh, history gets lost, that people forget about this guy. But he's a very important guy. Of course, there was a History Channel television show recently that featured Dr. Hynek. And um, the show was highly, highly, fictionalized. If you haven't seen it, you probably saw my interviews with the writers, directors, producers of the show, uh, and also Heineck's son, Paul Heineck. I've interviewed him a couple times. Um, but uh, the good thing about the Project Blue Book show is that, uh, well, I love the actor, Aidan Gillen, uh, who played Heineck. I think he did a great job. Um, but also, at least it brought awareness that, that this guy existed. So Dr. Hynek was uh, an astronomer, and he was, uh, like it says, a professor of astronomy at Ohio State University when he became a consultant for the U.S. Air Force on UFOs in 1947. At the time, he said UFOs were utterly ridiculous. Um, and then uh, he was a skeptic. In fact, in 1966, he called a famous 
citing in Michigan swamp gas, and he never lived that down. Now people are always making fun of this idea that UFOs are swamp gas or that the government's going to gaslight us by telling us that these UFOs are swamp gas. But swamp gas isn't really entirely a proven phenomenon as far as I know, and this is when supposedly that uh, swamp gas can, can become luminous. Um, allegedly. So I think that's something that's still being researched. And maybe if, even if it is a real thing, what was seen in Michigan was uh, not similar to that. Um, however, you know, Heineck argues that he was often pushed in front of the press right when something happens and told, tell them that it's, you know, nothing to it. And he would do it like he did here and then get very upset and say, hey, you know, I don't appreciate that. I need to actually investigate things. But they weren't really concerned with him investigating, they said. They were more concerned with him explaining things away. And that was a problem for him. He didn't like that. Um, but Dr. J. Allen Hynek is really important in that although he was a skeptic at the beginning, he didn't remain a skeptic. In fact, he eventually came to believe that... Um, that there really was something to the UFO phenomena. Um, in 1952, he says, that's when his mind began to change. In fact, uh, because of that Life article where there were these two famous astronomers claiming to have UFO sightings, he decided to write a report for Project Blue Book when it started about astronomers and UFOs. He called it the special report on conferences with astronomers on unidentified aerial objects. In his first book, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, that he published in 1969, Heineck quoted physicist and philosopher Erwin Schrodinger when he wrote, the first requirement of a scientist is that he is curious. He should be capable of being astonished and eager to find out. And that was one of his biggest criticism with astronomers, that many of them didn't want to find out. But as scientists, that's what they're supposed to do. Bad astronomers. In fact, um, for this report that he did for Blue Book, he decided that it would be valuable to get the opinions of astronomers on UFOs and assist the UFOs uh, in assisting the, the UFOs the UFO investigation by the Air Force. In order to get the astronomers' true opinions, however, Heineck didn't tell them he was involved with the Air Force. He told them he was just a traveling astronomer visiting observatories to talk about scientific issues. So he went around uh, to visit observatories and he was asking these astronomers' opinions but he wasn't saying, oh, I'm collecting this for the Air Force and, and the UFO research. He was just saying, you know, as, pretending it was just small talk. Now, he didn't reveal names. Um, he kept people who wanted to remain anonymous anonymous. But among those who shared their UFO sightings, one had said that he and another astronomer had sighted a group of five ball-bearing-like objects that were moving rapidly during the day. Two years later, he saw a singular, similar object. Uh, another astronomer reported that he had seen a light zoom across his field of view 
that went too fast to be a plane and too slow to be a meteorite. This astronomer pointed out that it's important that scientists do not, quote, fall into the error of believing we understand all physical phenomena. Um, Hynek actually found out that 40 astronomers he interviewed, of the 40 astronomers that he interviewed, five had reported sightings. Hynek noted that this is a higher percentage than the rest of the population, you know, given their results of Project Blue Book. So they found, you know, that this is actually, astronomers are seeing UFOs more. Uh, of course, this is only a group of 40, but still interesting. He speculated that this is perhaps because astronomers are watching the sky more often, but also noted that astronomers are less likely to, mis uh, to misidentify aerial objects. So that makes this, this statistic even more important because the general public is, is not used to looking at the sky and looking at celestial objects as much of astronomers are. So astronomers are going to be able to identify meteorites or something that is a normal celestial or, or natural phenomena. But even given that, five of the out of the 40 astronomers he talked to said they had UFO sightings. They had sightings that they could not explain. He felt that uh, astronomers, uh, what he called lethargy towards the subject, was mostly due to a lack of good information. Hynek said their biggest fear seemed to be getting branded as questionable scientists as a result of any association with the UFO topic. Not surprising. I mean, that sort of taboo exists to this day. Even with the government having more interest than the military talking about this topic, you know, there are more um, astronomers coming forward or scientists coming forward, but still, overall, they're very hesitant, it seems, to talk about this topic. He actually recounted a story of a reception at he, that he was at, um, which there were several hundred astronomers there. And uh, it was reported that there was a UFO being seen outside making strange maneuvers. He said people laughed and made jokes, but not a single astronomer went outside to investigate. His problem with that was that the lack of investigation didn't exhibit a true scientific inquisitiveness. He noted physicist and philosopher um, Erwin Schrodinger, this is when he noted that quote I read earlier, which is, the first requirement of a scientist is that he is curious. He should be capable of being astonished and eager to find out. So kind of weird, you know, um, it's kind of counterintuitive to today's world where somehow scientists are supposed to be stoic and have all the answers. Um, and, and that's been a problem. So when they're posed with something really weird, they uh, often will, or just kind of outside of the realm of what is normal, paranormal, if you will, or considered normal, they, they have this reaction that it can't be. He even talked about this, that he felt guilty because uh, when he first joined, you know, the Air Force in their UFO investigations, 
he had this attitude that many had, which was, it can't be real. UFOs cannot be mysterious. They all have to be explainable. Thus, there is no weird explanation. So we can't even go there. What we have to do is figure out, okay, was this a meteorite? Well, it had to be a meteorite. Why did it do? Why did it look like it took a right-hand turn? I don't know. It couldn't have done that, so it didn't. Um, that sort of attitude was what really stymied the investigation, he said. Over time, you know, given the data and that things weird were happening, you know, that allowed him to begin to accept that and to look more closely into these topics. But wait, there's more. So J. Allen Hynek is really important because he essentially began civilian UFO research into this or helped start it. In 1969, um, that was the same year, actually at the very beginning, that uh, the Air Force got out of the UFO investigation business. Essentially, you know, there was this, uh, what could be argued a sham of an investigation by uh, Robert, uh, professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, one of my alma maters, I've actually went there. But uh, Dr. Condon uh, already had preconceived notions. There's no doubt, there's proof of this. Uh, he even said the trick to this in this, this memo that was not supposed to be public, the trick to this investigation, and essentially he was telling the university, uh, uh, the head of the university, some of the leadership there, don't worry, we're not going to look goofy. The trick is going to be that we're going to, we already are going to know we're going to tell people there's nothing to this, but we got to look like we did a genuine investigation. Um, so it came out that they didn't do a genuine investigation. What was interesting is some of the scientists that were doing the investigation felt the opposite. They felt that the research they did with the Condon report demonstrated there was something mysterious to UFOs. And in fact, uh, there's a French scientist, Claude Poher, who felt the same. He read this report uh, and he said, no, this report doesn't disprove that there's scientific uh, value in investigating UFOs. It proves there is. And in fact, Claude Poher uh, was influenced by this to create in France a UFO investigation organization um, that started in the 70s and continues to this day. In fact, uh, Dr. Hynek's kind of pupil, uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée, who is French, uh, but went to uh, one of the universities, Northwestern, that Hynek taught at, uh, Jacques Vallée uh, helped Claude Poher create that UFO group. But um, in 1969, it was Dr. Hynek's book that established the Close Encounters UFO reporting scale. And you can see this because, of course, this is what influenced the title and the whole movie by Steven Spielberg called Close Encounters. It was Hynek who came up with that. And here you can see the different levels of close encounters. There's, uh, you know, a CE1, a CE2, a CE3. A one is a sighting of a UFO. A two is um, a physical evidence being left of a UFO. And a three is actual contact. Bum, bum, bum. So, in fact, this photo right here is from the movie Close Encounters. 
Uh, this is a screenshot where there's a scene where the, the UFO lands and these guys are coming out of it. They're people who have been lost in the past. And Hynek comes out of the crowd, the scientists, like you see here, looking on, wow, this is very interesting. And uh, so we got a little cameo in the movie. In 1973, Hynek founded the Center for UFO Studies, uh, often referred to as the acronym CUFOS or CUFOS. In 1980, CUFOS conducted a poll which included 800 members of various amateur astronomer associations. They found that 24% responded that they had observed an object which resisted their most exhaustive efforts at identification. Whoa. So this is now a bigger pool than the other one, obviously, because, uh, you know, it included 800 members of these associations and a full 24% essentially said they saw UFOs. A more exhaustive study was done by Hannick with KUFOS uh, which in 1980, well, essentially they did an even bigger one. Oh, no, this is the same one. I'm sorry. This is a repeat for some reason. I have that twice. I need to fix that. I'm looking at my notes here, and for some reason I had that last bullet point twice. So 24% of astronomers, Mr. Shostak, Mr. Shostak, I implore you, I implore you to look at this information and stop repeating these falsehoods that astronomers are not interested. Data, research, facts, that's what you're supposed to be about. Isn't that right, Dr. Shostak? Look at the data and the facts. Come on, dude. So let's see. I'm not even over Here's the Condon Committee. I already talked about this. Um, he, he essentially said, uh, you know, this ran from 66 to 68. He said, our general conclusion is that nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that has added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record as it is available to us leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby. One interesting thing about this whole thing too, as an aside here, and I'm gonna come look at you guys in the eye again here, is that Condon here is talking about the scientific value of investigation of UFOs. Recently, we've you know heard about this Pentagon pro project, ATIP, I almost said project, like you Canadians say, but uh, this, this Pentagon project, ATIP, Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program, uh, which stemmed from this program, OSAP, Advanced Aerial Weapon System Identification Program, OSAP, something like that. But the point is, they're talking about weapons and threats. The reason why the Air Force is going to be interested in looking at a topic like this is not for the scientific value. Perhaps, I mean, an end rule, an end uh, gain to this 
you know, uh, like when we're observing foreign technology is to get your hands on that foreign technology to then understand that foreign technology so you can develop your own weapons using this technology and advance your own ability to do this sort of thing. That's why the Air Force is interested initially with threats. Uh, well, that's not why. The, why it's a threat is because this could potentially be a weapon. This could be an advanced weapon from an adversary. That's why it's a threat, and that's why it's important. And that's why anything unknown is going to be a threat. Um, the way that uh, my friend Ben Hansen puts it, let's say you're in your house. You get up in the morning and you see footsteps. Someone was in your house. Maybe they didn't touch anything. Maybe it was a friendly person just coming to pet your dog or look at this beautiful picture they noticed from outside that was on your wall or something like that. Or they wanted to come in and see how you live versus how they live. You would consider that a threat. You don't know who the heck was in your house. You don't know what could have happened if your kids are sleeping. You know, it's your job as a parent to protect your house and, and, and your pets and everything. You know, you would consider that a threat. That's why it's a threat. So it's kind of, uh, you know, disingenuous for the Air Force to use this kind of uh, uh, conclusion to say, oh, there is no threat. And in fact, they didn't. They closed Project Blue Book, but there was a memo, the Bollinger Memo, it's called, that came out that said, uh, don't worry, any actual UFO sighting that is a threat to national security is escalated to a different department in a different way. Um, so they were taking these seriously, yet they're telling the public they don't, and they're telling the public, oh, there's nothing to UFOs, that's why we're closing down Project Blue Book. I recently wrote an article about how the government's been gaslighting us on UFOs for decades, and this is exactly what justifies me calling it that. I think that's accurate. I've gotten a little bit of criticism saying that's too harsh, I don't think it is at all. Um, but there were critics of the Condon report. Um, of course, one of them was Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He said the Condon report settled nothing. Also, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, Astronautics uh, a big organization of the most serious of serious astronomers, they said they did not find a basis in the report for, for the prediction that nothing of scientific value will come from further studies. Um, that was kind of a general feeling that if you actually read this report, and it is online, you can go find it. Uh, NICAP, that organization I re referenced earlier, I know has it online. Uh, they're, they're a defunct organization. They were one of the first... UFO groups um, back in this time, but uh, they still have a website that somebody keeps up, uh, even though they don't really exist anymore. But uh, that was a general conclusion, just like Claude Poher had said, which was that, you know, although they're saying there's nothing to all of this, the evidence laid out in the Condon report does not support that. If you read the Condon report, you'll notice there are some really good cases they couldn't resolve, indicating there really is something to all of this. All right, and here we go. Here's the next one, even more. So this is Peter Sturrock. He is a professor of, a, he was a professor of applied physics at Stanford University. 
Um, much of his career was devoted to astrophysics, plasma physics, and solar physics. He was also interested in UFOs. You can see this quote here, the definitive resolution of the UFO enigma will not come about unless and until the problem is subjected to open and extensive scientific study by the normal procedures of established scientists or established science and administrators in university. I really agree with this comment. And unfortunately, this is kind of the hardest group to pierce. They're the most concerned about their reputation. Um, so they're the most hesitant to get involved with the topic. Uh, Sturick wondered if perhaps scientists would be interested in UFO reports by other scientists. So he conducted a small survey among the members of the San Francisco chapter of the American Institute of Aeronomics and Astronomics. And the results were published in their monthly journal in 1947. Of the 1,175 members responding, 5% said they had UFO sightings, which is not at odds with what uh, polls say to this day that, you know, uh, it's somewhere around 25% uh, or more that say they know someone who had a UFO sighting. However, uh, you know, it's about 5 to 10% that say they actually have had a UFO sighting. So, and again, it would make sense if the number of astronomers was lower because they're not as uh, prone to misidentifying things. But yeah, 5% said they had UFO sightings. Take, what do you think of that, Mr. Shostak? Encouraged by these results, he sought to do a larger survey and was given permission by the American Astronomical Society to pull their membership. Here's the results of that poll. He said he was pleased uh, to receive a 52% response rate with only a few rude remarks. So about half the people responded a little more. But he said, yeah, he only received a few rude remarks and that uh, the responses were actually overwhelmingly supportive. While again, about 5% admitted to having unexplainable sightings. Uh, Sturrock was even more satisfied with the results on his colleagues' interest in the topic. So as we can see here, for whether the UFO problem deserves scientific study, the answers were 23% said certainly. And that's really interesting because I think that, and, and, well, and then another 30% said probably, 37% said possibly. I think that this is really important because um, I, that's the sense I get as well out there, that astronomers and scientists really are interested in this topic. But uh, institutes are not ready to go there, essentially, you know, um, larger organizations like universities and such. and. Even though they have an interest, a lot of scientists are afraid to share that interest publicly. And I think that's what this survey demonstrates is that, you know, 
there really is an interest in the topic uh, by scientists. It's just that taboo. People are still afraid to talk about it, which is really unfortunate. Uh, only 17% said probably not as far as whether they deserve investigation. And only 3%, these are the ones that uh, Stanton Friedman would call the, the negative, the nasty negativists, only 3% said certainly not. And this is kind of borne out recent with the recent news. So with this recent news that, uh, you know, the government has investigated UFOs, they had put money towards it. Uh, some scientists were asked what they thought of that. And most scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Michio Kaku, and I think even Seth Shostak himself said they agreed that while they don't feel there's evidence that, you know, we're being visited by aliens, they do believe that these mysteries need to be investigated and researched because they possibly could um, result in some scientific discovery. So they actually agreed that, you know, this is a topic that should be looked into. Here is um, Peter Sturick again. Uh, and I think this is a great quote by him once again. He said, the word UFO presents an enigma, a puzzle concerning which everyone has an opinion, but no one has an answer. And I think that's great, uh, you know, especially for those of you who are on social media on this UFO topic, you know, it rings really true that everyone has an opinion, but nobody really has an answer. So all of this sort of research prompted Sturick to help start a new group called the Society for Scientific Exploration or the SSC, uh, which publishes, publishes a peer review journal. Essentially, you know, their scientists didn't want to look at topics that were more fringy like UFOs. So he and others put together this organization so they can have their papers on topics like this peer reviewed. The SSE is still going strong and it has a large membership of PhDs. In fact, I highly, highly recommend everybody go to their YouTube channel, their website, and um, follow them on social media. The SSE, the Scientific or the Society of Scientific Exploration, they have the most fascinating discussions and they'll post them on YouTube. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, you got to check it out. The website defines them as a professional organization of scientists and scholars who study unusual and unexplained phenomena. Subjects often cross mainstream boundaries such as consciousness, UFOs, and alternative medicine, yet often have profound implications for human knowledge and technology. And I think that's the real point. The, the profound implications, because although it may be a long shot, I think John Alexander uh, had a term for this. Um, he is a colonel, a re former colonel in the army, and he had been part of different paranormal projects in the army. But he said, these are projects that are high risk, high reward. So they're high risk in that you're spending a lot of money with the potential of not getting much in the way of results. Um, but, uh, and also publicly 
facing the risk of uh, being seen as not credible or getting your uh, credibility undermined uh, and your reputation. However, they have the potential for high reward because, of course, if you can prove uh, that some of what we're observing is technology from elsewhere uh, that is beyond us, you know, the data that you retrieve on those objects, such as even radar reports, video, um, credible expert uh, witness testimony, is going to give you some data as to the technology that is being used and potentially allow you to develop technology off of this. Or, of course, if you can actually obtain one of those objects, then you can even further, you know, the potential for scientific research and discovery, um, which may help us solve some very important uh, issues, you know, that we have on this planet. So high risk, high reward. So that's Peter Sturek. I want to now, uh, I do have a couple videos here, short videos from NASA that I want to show. I shouldn't get in any trouble for this. I noticed that there are some people watching. And uh, please, those of you who are watching, if you don't hear the sound, let me know immediately. The sound should work. It should come across. But these are some great videos, and I want you to see these um, on where we are. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time, its voyage at an end. Five captivating decades of research by NASA scientists has been inspired by curiosity, courage, and dedication. The lure of grand adventures and discoveries continue with a new era of space exploration. Where once NASA's goal was to land a man on the moon, the primary focus has now shifted to the exciting search for life in the universe. New technologies have opened up only previously imagined possibilities for this far-reaching work. Decision-making smart robots are being developed to continue what astronauts first pioneered, exploring, collecting, and analyzing samples discovered in our solar system. The scientists at NASA's Astrobiology Institute and its international partners are investigating some of Earth's most extreme environments with these uniquely designed instruments. Not only are they expanding the knowledge we have of our own planet, but they are developing, testing, and discovering tools, systems, and technologies for the search for life in the universe. For more information on these topics, go to the Astrobiology website at astrobiology.nasa.gov. Wow. I'm such a nerd. That stuff gets me... So flippin' excited. Um, you know, that's really exciting. In the 90s, you know, if you watch that movie Contact, the idea of looking for aliens was really seen as a complete joke. Um, and it was the work of SETI. Uh, you know, good old Shostak. I do love you, buddy. Um, and others, you know, Dr. Frank Drake, uh, Jill Tarter. Um, even though I cringe when they talk about UFOs because they obviously have not educated themselves whatsoever on the topic. You know, they're extraordinary and what they were able to achieve is extraordinary. When they began doing what they were doing, uh, searching for alien life seemed like a very fringe topic. 
And now that's what NASA's doing. NASA is almost, of course, you know, we hear a lot about them planning to go to the moon and to Mars, projects that are kind of pie in the sky, to be honest. It seems like SpaceX will be there 10 times over before NASA gets there. Um, but um, a, a large amount of the projects they're working on are actually looking for life in space. And I think uh, that is, you know, uh, before this, this big new space race to the moon, and I have a video on that and why that is all happening now. It's more political and uh, having to do with the politics and stuff. But, um, you know, now NASA is an alien hunting organization, just like that video talks about. Now, uh, you know, there has been a time and there are times where anything SETI does makes news. You know, Shostak is now like this famous guy. He's as famous as, uh, you know, the the... Bill Nye the science guy or any of the other top scientists out there. So I think it's extraordinary what SETI has been able to do to turn the public's opinion and the scientific community to their side to take this all seriously. And I think that we can do that in the UFO field, but we've got to do it like SETI did, paying attention to the science, having scientists feel comfortable to get involved because you know, the numbers show that they are interested, despite what Shostak thinks, they are interested in this topic. That is happening now. But like Peter Sturek says, until that happens more, and we really have a lot of our scientific uh, community or more so really tackling this topic, that's what it's going to take to learn more. Um, and in a way, they are doing that. And in a way, the tides are turning. And in fact, I have another video here that I want to show you from NASA. The way I say, the reason I make it, it's so important that they're from NASA means that they're public available. Anything that NASA produces, we as taxpayers have paid for. And luckily, it's not copywritten, so we can all use it. But this is a really great video. And I want to talk about today's world. Since the early 1990s, astronomers have known that extrasolar planets, or exoplanets, orbit stars light years beyond our own solar system. Because most exoplanets are too far away to be directly imaged, characteristics such as size, composition, and atmospheric makeup must be determined through a variety of indirect methods. For instance, when an exoplanet passes in front of its star, or transits, it blocks a fraction of the star's light and causes a dip in brightness. Large planets block more light, so the size of the dip can be used to determine the size of the planet. By observing an exoplanet's gravitational pull on its star, astronomers can also determine the planet's mass and thus calculate its density to see if it is composed of rock, like Earth, or gas, like Saturn. But to fully understand an exoplanet, astronomers must study its atmosphere, and the information that they need is encoded during a transit. As the planet crosses its star, its atmosphere absorbs certain wavelengths of light, or colors, while allowing other wavelengths to pass through. Because each molecule absorbs distinct wavelengths, astronomers spread the star's light into its spectrum of colors to see which wavelengths have been absorbed. The dark absorption bands act as molecular fingerprints, revealing the atmosphere's chemical makeup. Knowing the depth and density of the atmosphere is also important. To figure this out, astronomers observe the transit at many different wavelengths. 
At wavelengths where more absorption occurs, the planet will appear larger, with the change in size indicating how deeply the atmosphere extends and its density at different altitudes. Measuring the depth of absorption at each wavelength gives astronomers the planet's transit depth curve, which allows them to model the composition, height, and density of the atmosphere, providing a detailed picture of the planet. Recent studies suggest that exoplanets and their atmospheres come in a wide variety. At one extreme are hot Jupiters like WASP-19b, a boiling gas giant that orbits its star far closer than Mercury orbits our Sun. Visitors who could survive the heat might complain about the air quality. Planet WASP-19b's jagged transit depth curve suggests a deep atmosphere of poisonous hydrocarbons, with methane and hydrogen cyanide far more abundant than water. By contrast, planet Gliese 1214b is a comparatively inviting water world. Its nearly flat transit depth curve hints at a shallow atmosphere of pure steam enveloping an ocean thousands of kilometers deep with an interior of hot ice, water solidified by extreme pressure rather than cold. As detection methods improve, astronomers will search the atmospheres of Earth-sized planets for signs of life such as water vapor, oxygen, and methane taking us one step closer to finding a world like our own, all thanks to some flickering starlight. How flipping cool is that? Gosh, that gets me excited. I absolutely love these videos. So why is that important? Uh, of course, that's important because that's how we're searching for for uh, for aliens. And, you know, Kepler, of course, is searching for uh, to get a better idea of what's out there. Um, and one of the ways that they search for what's out there and how they find exoplanets um, you know, it's, it's just what they're talking about in order to find out if some of them, uh, so it's, you know, telling you how we figure out how these planets, what the makeup of these planets are. And this is how they find, you know, uh, potential, um, you know, you hear these terms super earth or the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone is kind of an area where a planet is, uh, far enough away from the sun that water will remain liquid like it does on this planet because as we know uh, life at least on this planet water is a key ingredient um, and so the Goldilocks zone is kind of where the planets that are in that zone with the proper um, you know what we know as what uh, harbor where life can exist that those are the planets where life might exist and that's what's important about you know Kepler and how they're looking for UFO or looking for aliens and planets that are habitable. But another aspect to all of this is that there's so much data. So these telescopes are huge. So when we're using a telescope at night, you know, we're focusing in on one particular celestial object, Saturn, the moon, something like that. But these telescopes like Kepler are capturing the entire an entire huge swath of space. And of course, as it goes further and further out, it's more and more information and data and area. So just an extraordinary amount of data. 
So it's hard to look into that data and to research it and look into every star and measure, you know, the wobble or the, the, the changes in the light frequency and things like they were talking about in that video. So they get citizens to do that. Citizen scientists, the data is shared with everyone and then people who are looking for planets, planet hunters can then come and find this data. That's exactly what happened in this case. And this is, as some of you will know, Tabby Star. It was found by Planet Hunters X. That's the name of the citizen scientists uh, who were looking for this. And I'll, this is a, a NASA graphic here about it. And essentially, let me get some, I got some interesting quotes for you here uh, on Tabby Star, uh, which is that it is also known as the Boyajan Star, uh, or one of the other nicknames is the WTF Star. Uh, its actual name is much more boring. It's KIC 8462852. It's an F-type main sequence star in the constellation Cygnus, and it's approximately 1,470 light years away if you want to go visit. Um, a, what is unique about this star is that it has unusual light fluctuations, um, including up to a 22% dimming in brightness. What's interesting about this is it was found, um, you know, I think in about 2015, but in 2000, yeah, the citizen science uh, part of Project X discovered it. And then the reason it's called Tabby Star is that this postgraduate, um, a postdoc at Yale named Tabitha Boyajian, Boyajian, I think that's how you say it, Boyajian, but she's the one who wrote up the first paper, was part of writing up a paper on this object. Um, and that's why they named it, they named it after her. So they first name Tabby, Tabby Star, last name Boyajian, so Boyajian Star. I don't know if she used to use the term WTF Star, maybe. But what's interesting about this and why I include it in this lecture is that one of the things that they speculated that could be causing this unusual dimming with this star is that there are alien, uh, it, well, they, they thought it could be a lot of stuff, maybe comets, maybe dust, maybe a ring around it like Saturn, and that's what's cre creating the unusual dimming. But what's interesting is that they speculated, before the UFO people got a hold of it, they speculated that perhaps it's aliens. Uh, before Giorgio got a hold of it, they were thinking maybe it's aliens. Maybe there's some kind of mega structure around the planet that is creating this. In particular, uh, let me show you this. Uh, this is what's referred to, this particular image, and let me show it to you bigger, is a Dyson bubble or part of a Dyson swarm. So there's the idea of a Dyson sphere, a Dyson swarm, a Dyson bubble, a Dyson ring. And what those are referring to is essentially a technology that is speculated where we could launch satellites that capture 
and we launch these around the sun. So these are surrounding the sun. And what they do is capture the energy, the solar energy from the sun, and then wirelessly send that to our planet, all of which is possible. Of course, we already have solar um, panels on our, the roofs of our homes to capture uh, energy. Tesla and others have theorized about uh, ways to send uh, energy power through wireless, wireless power. Um, that's not something that I don't think anything we've developed uh, yet, but it's it's something that's possible. So that's why they theorize that this Dyson sphere, this Dyson kind of scenario is possible. Why the difference with a bubble and a ring? Well, bubbles, you know, like this, a bunch of satellites that are around the, uh, the star. A sphere is like, you know, you're encasing the entire star surrounded by solar panels. Seems kind of silly. This seems more realistic. And a ring would be like a ring of satellites around the sun that is collecting that energy, probably something more likely. And of course, you know, if you listen to scientists talking about alien civilizations uh, and, and the possibilities of, of traveling, space travel, it takes immense amount of energy. And so they would need to capture this sort of immense amounts of energy from a sun. And so that's what they're theorizing. But it's interesting that they theorized aliens. These are astronomers. This was in a, a, you know, in a paper from astronomers and they're theorizing aliens. What's interesting, keeping with our theme of Seth Shostak and his involvement, is that there was a scientist and in fact, uh, it was a couple of guys who wrote a paper from, I believe it was the University of Columbia. Oh, I have an article on it uh, that I was looking at earlier. But uh, one of the guys involved with it, um, Paris, um, ah, I've interviewed him before. Uh, he actually used to be into UFOs and, you know, got involved with MUFON and others. Uh, and I forget, I'm so sorry if you're watching too, because uh, I think he still pays attention to this stuff. Really neat guy, uh, Paris. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. I'll, I'll try to figure it out. But anyway, he and another guy wrote a paper that it's probably cosmic dust and stuff like that or comets that are in front of uh, the star and that's what's causing this. Interesting enough, Seth Shostak wrote an article and the article is titled, I'll, I'll put a link in here, uh, has Tabby Star Mystery Finally Been Solved? But Shostak is arguing no that those guys don't have enough evidence and that the mystery has not been solved. So he's kind of arguing that, you know, it's potentially still aliens. So it's kind of funny that he, in this case, is the alien guy. So uh, really interesting. But uh, this is Shostak kind of arguing with the UFO people that, you know, it still could be aliens that we don't know for certain that it's something else. Now, there are scientists who have claimed that they have ruled out the alien megastructure. And the reason why is that, uh, kind of like we saw in that video earlier, they're saying that there are frequencies that are affected differently by the dimming of the light. They're not all frequencies are um, affected the same, which indicates that perhaps whatever it is is not completely opaque. So it's not something completely solid. So it could be dust or clouds or something like that. But it's still a mystery as to 
why cabbage star is dimming like that. But for our purposes, what I think is most fascinating is that it was the astronomers. It was the scientists who first went to the alien possibility. And I think that's really important because that's demonstrating an openness to the possibility that, uh, you know, that we can't rule that out and we need to keep that as a, a potential answer when we're looking at anomalous phenomena. Uh, Louise asks, is there another space telescope like Kepler set to launch in the near future? There is. And in this case, we would need my good buddy, Mark D'Antonio, because I cannot remember what that uh, telescope is. But yes, there is a new one that is going to be launching. Um, next slide. Amuamua, which I love to say that. Amuamua. In fact, uh, I've got a great lecture from an astronomer and I've got to post it. It was actually a lecture done for Phoenix MUFON, who often lets me uh, post their lectures. They've let me post my lectures. I've got a great one from John Alexander, who I mentioned earlier that I posted. I think everybody's got to watch. But this, this astronomer went over Amuamua and it was a fascinating talk because it actually is pretty mysterious. First of all, this was something uh, that came through uh, a couple years ago. And I should know the exact year. Um, and I'm going to look it up for you. Amuamua. It's got a fabulous name also. I think that you would all agree. Aumuamua. It's impossible to spell, which makes it really difficult to Google. Oh my gosh. Sorry. The reason why, okay, so this was, yeah, just last year, right? Oh no, 2017. Sorry. Okay, so Oumuamua here. Uh, it's the first interstellar object that we've observed. What does that mean? Typically when we see comets or comets or objects uh, coming from far away, asteroids or something like that, typically they are in a orbit around the sun. So they're part of our solar system. Um, even if that orbit is huge and it goes very far away and then it comes closer uh, and that's why we don't know of it or don't see it often. So this is the one, though, the first one to come out of our solar system, get caught by our sun, come near the sun, and then fly back out into the solar system, probably never to be seen again. Very odd. In fact, we didn't detect it till it was close, and we didn't really start to get to uh, look at it closely until it was moving away from us. And that's why we couldn't really send a spacecraft to go check it out because it was already moving away. But it's very odd shaped. It's flat and long. It also moves strangely. It doesn't move, it didn't move like a regular comet or an asteroid. It also tumbled and it had no tail. They did try to see if they could get any, detect any radio signals from it, but they didn't. They said it was uh, dead quiet. In a paper 
published in November of that year, um, researchers from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics had said, if radiation pressure is the accelerating force, then Oumuamua represents a new class of thin interstellar material either produced naturally through a yet unknown process in the ISM or in protoplanetary disks or of artificial origin. Um, so the point is that they, they again, introduced the possibility of artificial origin. What was weird about the object is the way that it came through. Um, often objects will, you know, uh, and, it, and it accelerated in speed. They thought, well, perhaps it is being pushed by the sun, by the radiation of the sun. And so that's what they mean uh, when they talk about radiation here. Um, but if that was the case, like it says, this material is unknown to us. We don't know of a material that would react the way that this object reacted. They not only said it could be of artificial origin, they went so far as to suggest that it could be a light sail floating in, in interstellar space. A light sail, you might have seen this on Star Trek on the episode um, uh, First Contact where uh, essentially it was kind of like one of the first spaceships we had, which is a light sail. It's a big sail like a ship, but instead of wind pushing that sail, it is the sun that is, you know, the radiation from the sun that is propelling that object. It's a, it's a you know, potential way that we might be able to use in starships in the future. Um, they also said a more exotic scenario is that Oumuamua may be a fully operational probe sent intentionally to Earth, uh, to Earth vicinity by an alien civilization. How weird is that? Uh, so again, I mean, the important part of this is that, again, this is scientists that are suggesting that this is potentially alien technology. So pretty weird, really weird stuff here. Um, and again, you know, it's indicating that people are open to this possibility of aliens, that scientists are really warming up to this idea. So in conclusion, because this is the last, this is it here. I think what I've been able to demonstrate is not only has, uh, have astronomers been the main people to first look at and see UFOs um, all the way back to the inception of astronomy in the uh, Renaissance period, but that it was astronomers who really started this whole UFO thing. It was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who right when the Air Force decided to stop investigating was out there in the public saying that this is a real thing, uh, that this is something that we need to investigate. He inspired the movie Close Encounters. Um, it was astronomers in that Life Magazine article who helped influence the creation of Project Blue Book because they had seen UFOs. 
when it comes to whether or not astronomers are seeing UFOs, all of the studies that have been done thus far, doing inventories to ask astronomers if they've seen UFOs, they've all said, had a, a fraction of people who have said, yes, we've seen UFOs, uh, a percentage that is equal to, if not larger, well, I would say about equal to the general population, maybe a bit lower, but still not too off. And uh, beyond that, you know, it continues to be astronomers and their interest in this topic that keeps it going forward. And in fact, now astronomers, when they are having discoveries of something they can't answer, are feeling comfortable to suggest maybe it's aliens, maybe it's alien technology. Is it because Giorgio and his wild hair and he's done this, or is it just that scientists, you know, all of the polls show that the younger people out there, the youth are really into this topic and they take it seriously and they believe there's something to it. Um, what this means is uh, hopefully ending on a positive note here is that, you know, um, science is opening up to this topic. Peter Sturick's dream of, you know, science really tackling this, I think is a possible, but it's going to take an effort like SETI. It's going to take serious scientific rigor and it's going to be take people um, being careful about the way this is presented, scientists getting involved and demonstrating or presenting information in a truly credible scientific manner. Um, not, you know, people talking about, it's not about conspiracies and dubious information. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's the point. So hopefully this prepares you for your next encounter with Shostak and you'll be able to tell him, yes, astronomers do think there's something to all of this. So thank you all so much for joining me uh, for another Rojas Reports. Until next time, uh, dare I say it, adios muchachos.